there was this four-headed creature that had four legs and it was walking down the street. The creature eventually was coming up on a crossroads and had to decide which direction it should go. I should say it had four heads, not four legs, but it had to decide which direction it wanted to go. And so head number one suggested uh, we should go left. Head number two suggested we should go right. Head number three said uh, we should keep straight. Keep straight. The head number four said, no, we should go back. They were all resolute in their positions and determined to go in a direction that they felt they should go. And that's what they did. They all went in the direction they thought they should go. Four different heads. Consequently, the body was torn into shreds and left a bloody mess right in the middle of the road. Meanwhile, there was another creature that was coming down the same road. But this creature had only one head, but 12 legs. And when that creature came to that same crossroads, that creature, he said to the 12 legs, elevate me so I can see what's the best way for us to go. The legs elevated the head, chose a direction and they continued their journey in peace. My brothers and sisters, these two stories remind us that leadership matters. Someone must be out front leading the parade. Someone must be guiding the hem of the ship. Someone must be driving the caboose or the train and so on. Someone must make the decisions. They must cast the visions and lead the mission. In God's church, he has ordained leadership through pastors and elders as he has required the church membership to support and to follow her leaders. So this is what I want to focus on for a few minutes here this morning. I want to preach from this subject, responding to church leaders. Uh, from the book of Hebrews, chapter 13, or, or we'll read verse 17 and 18. Notice the words all the way to verse 19. He says, obey them. This is Hebrews 13, beginning at verse 17. Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves. Watch this. For they watch for your souls as they must give account that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. Pray for us, for we trust we have a good conscience in all things willing to live honestly. But I beseech you the rather to do this, that I may be restored to you the sooner. The Lord added a blessing to the reading of his holy and inspired word. Let the church shout out, amen. For the second time in Hebrews chapter 13, 
the author gives instruction concerning those who have rule in the church. It was first in verse seven that he mentioned, and he said, remember them that have the rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow considering the end of their conversation. And now in verse 17, an interesting observation that we notice is that the command to follow your leaders is preceded by the command to remember which seemed to suggest that maybe they had forgotten. There was perhaps some kind of rebellion and defiance against the pastors and church elders. They were perhaps bucking against and causing chaos in the church. God is not pleased with such actions, my brothers and sisters, in the church of God. Therefore, he speaks boldly in these verses concerning that very issue. Let's outline our text today in this way. Three things we want to take note of in these verses on how you ought to respond to your pastor, to your church leader. Three things you want to take note of. First of all, we see some implications in how you ought to respond. Secondly, we notice some specific instructions on how to respond. And finally, we see some incentives, implications, instructions, incentives. Let's look at these. First of all, we see the implications in verse 17. Listen again to the words of verse 17 and hear these implications. He says, obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves for they watch for your souls that they may give account that they do it with much joy and not grief that will be unprofitable for you. There's some implications here, brothers and sisters. The first implication of these words is that you should have a pastor. You should have a pastor. Watch this. Every Christian should be accountable to a human leader. The, your, your shepherd, your covering, the vessel through whom you can clearly hear the great shepherd's voice, the one who is feeding you, who is leading you and attending to your soul. You, my brothers and sisters, are not to be self-governed. You're not to be led by some other de facto shepherd. Your prayer partner is not your pastor. Your small group leader is not your pastor. Reading the Bible every day and praying in your living room is not a substitute for a pastor. The pastor, the passage says that they have the rule over you. When he says they have the rule over you, this is not talking about the rule of like civil authorities, nor the rule of an elected official, nor the rule of kings, nor the rule of secular leaders. And the reason we know it's not talking about any of those, because he says that these leaders watch for your souls. None of those other leaders, they don't watch for your soul. So this obviously is referring to spiritual leaders your pastors, your elders, your church leaders, those who have been ordained and are appointed to lead the church of God. 
those who meet the qualifications of 1 Timothy chapter 3, 1 Peter chapter 5, Titus chapter 1, those ruling elders, like he mentions in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17. God intends for every Christian to have a pastor and human accountability of your soul. God requires that. There's another implication. The other implication is that your soul has blind spots. God, my brothers and sisters, has set a watchman over your soul. And that's what pastors do. They cover your spiritual blind spots. You know, you remember blind spots in driver's training. We, we learn about the blind spots. If you are, are driving down the road and you get ready to change lanes, most vehicles come with side view mirrors. But it's only when you turn your head can you check your blind spots. And blind spots are so important now that some cars even come with little lights that will turn on when a car is in your blind spot. And, and then they even have some that will beep to let you know that something's in your blind spot. Uh, it, it appears when you glance in the mirror that nothing is there. That is because that vehicle is riding in your blind spot. If a vehicle is too far past the mirror's threshold of, of view, it will not be captured in the mirror. So to ensure that the lane is truly clear before you change the lane, then you turn your head. And so, brothers and sisters, in a like manner, as you journey through your Christian life, there's going to come a time when you need to change lanes. And when you're ready to change lanes, God has given you a pastor to alert you, he's the light that comes on. He'll help you turn your head in the right direction to protect you from potential destruction and danger that comes from violated blind spots. Now, in context, more than likely, the writer is concerned about false teachers who have been influencing them and competing for their loyalty. He wants them to only be loyal to true teachers of the gospel. He wants them to keep their distance from false teachers of that day. Because my brothers and sisters, just as a car that gets in the lane, not noticing what was in the blind spot will cause destruction, false teachers cause destruction and damage in the church. So that's another implication. So the first implication, you should have a pastor. Second implication, your soul has blind spots, but there's another implication. Your relationship with your pastor matters. Two words in the text, or one in particular, he uses the word prophet. He says it affects your prophet. Watch this. Let's see. The overwhelming implication of this passage is that as a Christian, watch this, you should seek to be friends with your pastor. Did you hear what I said? As a Christian, you should seek to be friends with your pastor. 
You ought to study your pastor. You ought to learn how your pastor ticks. You ought to seek to work in harmony with your pastor because God has so ordained, watch this, a contingent relationship between pastor and people. I'm in the text. Here it is in summary, brothers and sisters, your pastor's joy is contingent on your obedience. Good God Almighty. However, if your pastor is a grieving pastor instead of a joyful pastor, the Bible says that is unprofitable for you. Stay with me. God holds your pastor responsible for how he handles your soul. But if you're working against your pastor, God holds you responsible in that he said it is unprofitable for you and he will hold you accountable for your defiance. Now, the main reason it will not be profitable for you is because when your pastor gives account for your soul, this is serious stuff, brothers and sisters. When the text says that the pastor shall give account for your soul, it means that God will require your pastor one day to give a verbal reference on you. Now, we get this idea from the word account in the text. The word account is actually translated logos, which means spoken word. Watch this. In other words, it is a record or a narrative description of past events. In other words, one day, God is going to ask your pastor, Pastor Hunt, tell me a story about each one of your members I have placed under your account. Now, you can see very quickly how this may go in one direction or another. Let me ask you a question. When Pastor Hunt has to tell a story about you, will it be a horror story? Will it be a drama? Uh, will it be uh, a joyful story? Will it be a fiction? What kind of story? Will it be a grievous story? The passage seemed to suggest, my brothers and sisters, that profit will either be added to you or taken away based on the story <laughs> that your pastor tells. So just like a job reference can make you or break you, so can a pastor's joy make your joy or grief. And so that is an implication. So those are the implications that we notice in the text. You need a pastor. Your soul has blind spots. And, and then your relationship with your pastor matters. But we notice, secondly, verse 17 and 18, that there are some specific instructions. Again, notice the words of verse 17, 18, obey them that have the rule over you. That's instructions. Submit yourselves. That's instructions. For they watch for your souls that they may do it. They may give account that they may do it with joy and not with grief. That's unprofitable for you. Here's more instruction in verse 18. Pray for us, for we have, we Trust we have a good conscience and all things willing to live honorably. We find some instructions here. 
the first set of instruction is that to obey and submit. Now, these are fighting words in our American culture. We are a society of free will independence. Uh, this kind of language sounds oppressive and antiquated, abusive and flat out insane to some people. Uh, I could hear the silent protest in your minds right now saying, I'm grown. I'm a grown man. I, I'm not going to submit to anyone. Now, that sounds cute and it's characteristic of our westernized culture. However, these two things, to obey and submit, are a normal part of the Christian DNA, because throughout the Bible, we are told to obey and submit and submit. In Romans chapter 13, it tells us to submit to silver, civil authority. In 1 Peter chapter 2, it says, obey the laws of the land and that we are to give heed to every human ordinance. And, and then we see in Titus chapter three, it says, be submissive to you, the rulers and the authorities, be obedient and ready for every good work. We see in Matthew 22, verses 17 through 22, it says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God, the things that are God. Ephesians tells wives to be in submission to their own husbands and for husbands to submit to their wives in love and for children to submit to their parents in obedience and for employees to be in subjection to their employers. So this is not a strange concept to Christians. It is simply who we are and what we are required to do. The only caveat that the scripture gives is when man tries to coerce you to break God's law and to exalt man's law, then we are instructed to obey God rather than man. The Apostle Paul even said, follow me as I follow Christ. When I stop following Christ, you stop following me. So this is not a foreign concept, brothers and sisters. It is within the scheme of God's design, submission and obedience, those who are in the family of God. Notwithstanding, it's also important to realize that this verse is not suggesting a domineering and subservient relationship. It is not to say that the pastor is the dictator and you are his royal subject. That is not the spirit of the text. The spirit of the text is that that of being uh, a willing, cooperative uh, participant. It is giving deference. As you give one in authority, you give them a deference. You give them a certain respect for the God-given appointment and spiritual authority. So the spirit of the text is, since you love God, and you want to please him, respect his appointed leadership. Uh, the word obey in the text means to be in compliance. It means to give prompt response without rebuttal. It means to be agreeable with. It means to conciliate, to have confidence in, to trust. It, it is the idea of being willing to be led. Some people are not willing to be led. You see, you have sheep in the church and you have goat that come to church 
Now, you can always tell the difference because the goats, they always say, but. Every time a command or any instruction is given, they say, but, but, but. It's easy to figure out the goats. But the idea of being obedient is be willing to follow, to trust that, that they are being led by God's man, to trust that they are being led by someone who is, whose steps are being ordered by the Lord and you follow without rebuttal. Like a soldier in formation, when the drill command is given, executed sharply. So when that sergeant stands in front of the formation, he says, attention, the heels click together. When he says, left face, you execute sharply that left face. Forward march, platoon halt. That is the idea of obedience. It is giving prompt response to the command that has been issued. And so your pastor has the vision. He has a desired end state in mind. He's guiding you there. Trust him. Follow him as long as he's following Christ. This word submit means to accept his authority. It means to yield in deference. Don't resist. Don't buck against. This is a military term that actually means to rank under. And so the colonel ranks under the general. And then the major ranks under the colonel. And then the captain ranks under the major. The lieutenants rank under the captain. And then the sergeants rank under the lieutenant. So to rank under means that you'll stay in your appointed position and you'll respect their position as it is appointed rank under. Now, if he strays from the book, don't follow. Otherwise, stay right there with him through it all. Accept his authority. Rank yourself under. The idea of submission is illustrated through the words of Jesus Christ in chapter 11, verse 29 of Matthew, where he said, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. To submit means to wear the yoke. The yoke was a mark of submission. And those who refused the yoke were considered stiff-necked. So one thing that the author is saying, don't be stiff-necked towards your pastor. <laughs> Obey, submit. Notice uh, the intensity of these words. We notice uh, through the syntax that these are present imperatives, which shows continuous action is a, a command of continuous action. So this is more than a one-time act. He's, he's saying, just because you were obedient and submissive today, don't think that you've checked the block. No, make this a habit. Make this a standard way of how you will respond. But there's another part to the instruction. He not only says obey and submit, but we see that the instruction says pray for them. That's what we pick up in verse 18. Pray for them. The greatest thing you can ever do for your pastor, my brothers and sisters, is to pray for him. Not gossip about him, but pray for him. Not attack him, but pray for him. Not criticize him, but pray for him. Not compare him to other pastors 
but pray for him. Not to demonize him, but pray for him. Not to tear him down, but pray for him. Not to oppose him, not to antagonize him, not to beat him up, but pray for him. Not to criticize his family, but pray for him. Not to expose or exploit his weakness, but pray for him. Not to hate on him, but pray for him. Not to alienate him. My brothers and sisters, the text seem to suggest that the best thing you can do for your pastor is pray for him. Pray that God will protect him from the snares of the devil. Pray that God will shield and anoint him and keep him covered under the blood. Pray that God will give him more grace and more wisdom. Pray that God will give him more boldness and courage in the face of opposition. Pray that God will move him from faith to faith and from glory to glory. Pray that God will give him a deeper understanding of his word. Pray that God would guard his mind from distractions, his tongue from errors, his heart from pride. Pray that God will make him more vigilant. He will make him more of a visionary. Pray that God will make him a faithful watchmen over the flock of God for the souls of God's people. Pray that God will keep him walking upright, talking upright, living upright. Pray that God will keep the devil from throwing him. Pray for his spiritual, emotional, mental, and physical resiliency. Pray that God will keep him in every way so he don't drift off the path of truth. Pray for us is what the text says when he gives instruction. He goes on to say that we have a good conscience. There, in other words, was no corruption in his ministry. He had pure motives and intention. I want you to know, church family, that Pastor Derek Hunt is a man with pure motives. I want you to know that he's a man with pure intentions. I want you to know that he is a man who is not trying to take advantage of his position so that he can fleece the sheep for his own self-aggrandizement. He has a good conscience, my brothers and sisters. I'm telling you, I wouldn't be here preaching today if I didn't believe he had a good conscience. He's a man who lives in a heart of peace towards God and how he handles the sheep of God. This writer of Hebrews was living without any regrets or guilt as he did his ministry. And I want you to know your pastor, he does his ministry without guilt and regret. And there's one last thing as we close today. The way that you respond to your leaders, you must respond according to the implications. You should have a pastor because your soul has blind spots. Your relationship with your pastor matters. The instruction, obey, submit, pray for us. Then we see, lastly, there are some incentives. Notice the words of incentive that are in the text. He says, obey them to have the rule over you and submit yourself for they watch for your soul. 
that they may give account that they may do it with joy and not with grief. That's unprofitable for you. Pray for us. We trust that we have a good conscience in all things, willing to live honestly. But I beseech you, the rather to do this, that I may be restored to you the sooner. Here it is, brothers and sisters. Here's the incentive. The reason that you ought to respond to your pastor according to these implications and instructions is because there's great incentive. The first incentive that he points out is by you responding to your leaders this way, you have a joyful leader. <laughs> and joyful leaders matter. Let the church say joyful leaders matter. There's another incentive. He says it is profitable for you. Having a joyful pastor is profitable for you. There's one other incentive. They watch for your soul. They watch for your soul. This is a present indicative. They watch carefully. They watch diligently with vigilance for your soul. It implies sleepless watching. You have no idea, brothers and sisters, how many sleepless nights your pastor has had on your behalf. They lose sleep caring for the sheep. But there's one other incentive that's so good in verse 19. We see that it accelerates the move of God. He says, but I beseech you the rather to do this that I may be restored the sooner. That word sooner is a word of acceleration. It accelerates the move of God. This verse is tied to the commandment of verse 18 that said, pray for us. It suggests that this writer was somehow separated from his readers and he desired to be reunited. Perhaps he was separated as a result of persecution or imprisonment, or maybe just as a result of some missionary journey. Whatever the case, his desire to be reunited with them in fellowship was strong. His request reveals a provocative truth about the power of prayer. Prayer changes things. Hallelujah. Notice how in verse 19, he says, I beseech you, or I'm begging you to do this, the rather. The rather means to an extreme and excessive degree. I'm begging you. He's saying, I want you to increase your prayer time for me so God will move on my behalf quickly. Like he did for Esther when they prayed for her to see the king in a crucial time for the Jews when they could have been wiped out, but she declared a fast for three days and three nights and God moved quickly. The people of Nineveh and Jonah heard the reluctant message of Jonah to repent and they did. They declared such a fast that they didn't even let the animals eat. They said, Fido, no gravy train for three days, three nights. And God moved in mercy. And sometimes you've just got to pray in order to see God move in a great way. And my brothers and sisters, there are some things that you even had to fast and pray about it. Because there are some things that won't happen until you pray and fast. So it will accelerate the move of God. Prayer, my brothers and sisters, is what turns darkness into light. Pray for us. Prayer is what turns trouble into peace. Pray for us. Prayer is what turns sickness into health. Pray for us. Prayer is what turns doom into glory. Pray for us. Prayer is what will make 
a way out of no way. Pray for us. Prayer is what will make that possible, which is impossible. Pray for us. Prayer changes things. Prayer changes people. And I'm here today because somebody prayed for me. Jesus prayed for me in the Garden of Gethsemane one day. He prayed at first, Father, remove this bitter cup from me. But he said, nevertheless, not as I will, but thy will be done. He drank that bitter cup when he died on that old rugged cross. He was wounded for my transgressions, bruised for my iniquities. The chastisement of my peace was upon him. He died on that old rugged cross. He was buried in the tomb, but early Sunday morning, good God Almighty, he rose. He rose as the great shepherd of the church, but that great shepherd of the church has appointed some under shepherds like Dr. Derek Hunt. And he says, hear ye him, hear my under shepherd, respond to him according to the implications, respond to him according to the instruction, respond to him according to the incentive, because payday is coming at the while. Good God Almighty. God's word for God's people. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Amen.